coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Typically, the issue is that as Christians who believe in the authority of Scripture, uh, we rightly desire to base our beliefs and our practice upon God's Word. And the objection that's typically come up with this phrase, by good and necessary consequence, uh, is that if the Bible doesn't expressly teach something in the exact letters of Scripture, um, then we cannot impose theological inferences on other people. Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and it's been a few weeks, actually, since we've been able to do uh, an interview, mainly because I haven't had anybody scheduled, and I won't say whose fault that is, but he knows who he is. But be that as it may, we do have uh, a good discussion, I think, lined up today, uh, one that is uh, generated from a book that was written um, by uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw on the subject of, of interest to those who understand the differences and the specific elements of the Westminster Confession of Faith, mainly the phrase, by good and necessary consequence, and that just happens to be the title of the book and more about that in just a minute. This is broadcast 34, April 19th, 2013. For those who've been living under a rock and are not sure how to access this podcast, other than the way you're doing it right now, you can do so at confessingourhope.com. There we try to lay out all the information about past broadcasts, any kind of notes, information, links, resources that are relevant to that broadcast, as well as what is coming up on the program. In addition to that, you can also utilize our mobile app that's available through Android and iOS devices. And not only is the podcast available on the mobile app, but also you can get our past conferences that have been hosted by um, Greenville Seminary, including the one that just concluded um, this past March on the Doctrine of Man. So take advantage of those resources. They're free. They're for your benefit and edification, so use them. We've had about 800 downloads of the, of the mobile app to date, which is very encouraging and uh, far more than I had expected to see. And um, so get the word out. Let people know it is free for your use. Take advantage of it um, as you're able. As I indicated, we're going to be speaking with uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw. And I want to say Dr. Ryan McGraw, but that would be a little premature, I think. But anyway, I'm sure we'll hear more about that during the interview. But he is the pastor of First Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Sunnyvale, California. He has written numerous articles, books, including one that we have uh, discussed with him in recent days on the day of worship. That is, of course, on the Lord's Day. But today we'll be speaking with him on a book that has been put out um, entitled By Good and Necessary Consequence. And it's a book that's in the series called Explorations in Reformed Confessional Theology, and we'll talk more about that with him. So, Ryan, it's great to have you on again. Um, I know it's early where you are, and I bet money that you have a cup of coffee somewhere close by. Am I right? <laughs> Actually, not yet. Oh, well, we'll have to work on that. Um, unfortunately, it's not live, so no one's hearing that you need coffee. But 
be that as it may, it's great to have you on and uh, to talk about this particular book. Thank you, Bill. Now, this Explorations in Reformed Confessional Theology, uh, it obviously lends itself to the idea that there's going to be more books in this series coming uh, under that heading. Uh, what is the goal or purpose of that this particular series, before we get into the specifics of the, this book that we're going to talk about? Well, uh, the series is edited by Danny Hyde and Mark Jones, and so far there are two volumes in the series. The first is Danny's book on the uh, uh, He Descended into Hell Clause in the Apostles' Creed, and then my book is the second volume in the series. Um, the goal is to take aspects of either the three forms of unity uh, or the Westminster Standards and explain phrases that may be difficult or raise questions to people. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, obviously, He Descended Into Hell is a good one for Danny to pick. Uh, one, interestingly, I looked up a couple of reviews on his book online, and one complaint that I saw from several people was the book was too short. And um, actually, the series is designed to be around 20,000 words or less, which I think mine was... Um, maybe 18,000 or, or just around 20,000, and we're talking about a 70-page uh, book. So the idea is to make these inexpensive and small and readable to lay people in our churches. Yeah, and I think it's a great idea, as I indicated to you off-air. I was able to read the book in, in just a couple hours, um, <coughs> and sit down. Um, I was actually sitting in my car, um, and I was able to just read it quickly, uh, work through it, and um, uh, and so it, it does accomplish that. It gets the idea, the thoughts, the, um, the, the core issue in front of the person um, without a lot of, and, and without a lot of theological verbiage, as it were. I mean, there is that, but it's not laden. You don't need to read it with a dictionary sitting next to you, in other words, you, if you have some understanding of basic doctrinal issues. You can read the book and get a good grasp of what's going on and, and perhaps it prompts further thought. Now, you mentioned that the series is designed to deal with um, those difficult phrases. I, I did interview uh, Danny Hyde on his book uh, on another podcast that I used to do uh, years ago, um, and I'd forgotten about that, actually. But these difficult phrases, um, your book is on one of those difficult phrases, I guess. Why you, why you on that phrase? Well, um, after I had finished my THM project at Greenville Seminary, I had sent the project to Reformation Heritage, asking them if they were interested in publishing it. And my THM project was on reform worship, but specifically the biblical warrant for including elements in our service that are derived by good and necessary consequence. So in other words, what I was dealing with was aspects of our worship service that we're not going to find an express commandment or a direct example why we should do it this way, and yet uh, believe that Scripture still implies that we need to do it. And examples of that would be uh, for example, we practice baptism in public worship. 
and yet we don't have express commands to do so as an element of worship um, or even explicit examples in the book of Acts. And the question remains, uh, since our worship must be governed by Scripture alone and we worship according to God's commandments, is there still uh, a necessity of including an element like baptism uh, or the call to worship, uh, the offering, the benediction, and those were my chapters. And I argue that we should include those, uh, but that's another story for another time, I suppose. But uh, the publisher uh, liked the idea of the book, but because it only dealt with a, a small portion of the worship service, uh, felt that it did feel a need, but they would have difficulty marketing it. Uh, well, Jay Collier at Reformation Heritage uh, saw the first chapter, which was on the principle of good and necessary consequence, and that caught his eye in relation to this particular series that Danny and Mark were editing. And um, so he asked if I would double the size of that chapter and turn it into a small volume for that series. Well, let me give uh, the listeners a little context, if unless if, for those uh, who may not be familiar with what we are actually talking about. The phrase, the phrase we're discussing is, comes right out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6. And I want to read the entire paragraph so we have the context <coughs> of which this phrase that has given some people difficulty, and we're going to come back to why that is. But here's the whole paragraph. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So that's a mouthful, and there's a lot in that paragraph, but specifically this phrase, good and necessary consequence. Why should and why has, maybe give us a history of why that particular phrase trips people up or causes some difficulty in people's thinking? Well, typically the issue is that as Christians who believe in the authority of Scripture, uh, we rightly desire to base our beliefs and our practice upon God's Word. And the objection that's typically come up with this phrase by good and necessary consequence uh, is that if the Bible doesn't expressly teach something in the exact letters of Scripture, um, then we cannot impose theological inferences on other people and cannot make them binding on the conscience. And, and really the idea that we're dealing with here is um, that good and necessary consequences are uh, items in Scripture that are deduced from biblical principles or sometimes even strung together, as I imagine we'll probably 
talk about some examples in a moment, uh, but just as a precursor, without this principle, uh, you wouldn't have things such as the doctrine of the Trinity or the um, uh, doctrine of the two natures of Christ, where you're not going to find a nice, uh, biblically defined statement of those doctrines in any one place. But you're going to have to look at the big picture of Scripture and piece together various statements and various doctrines of the Bible until you put them together as a whole, and then you're going to uh, put together doctrinal formulations. So the importance of, of the question of what does good and necessary consequence mean is I believe that this phrase lays the entire foundation for systematic theology, uh, but it also lays the foundation for the application of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, in, in other words, as a minister, if I didn't use good and necessary consequence, I'd never be able to apply the text directly to my audience, at least not with divine authority behind it. Because when I apply a text of Scripture, what I want to show people is though um, there may be different ways that you may apply something such as Bible reading, um, I'm going to draw a deduction from Scripture if, if my text is enforcing why we need to read the Bible, for example. I'm going to tell my audience that by good and necessary consequence, you must read your Bible. Uh, how you do it, how often you do it is, is another matter and there's considerable freedom. But I wouldn't be able to make that kind of statement with any divine authority behind it unless it was a, a good and necessary deduction or conclusion from the text of Scripture. Hmm. Now, when we're talking about, and I think it, for the listeners, it's going to be it's going to be extremely helpful to define this phrase um, before we actually get into whether the Bible actually supports the statement, whether the Bible actually uses the statement. Um, so when we're saying, when we say, or when the divines at Westminster inserted or placed into their confession this phrase, by good and necessary consequence, what exactly do they mean? Well, um, the first way to state it is negatively, since good and necessary consequence is standing in contrast to precepts or direct statements and approved examples. Um, so, for example, um, you could have a statement in Romans 9 that refers to Jesus as the true God and eternal life. Uh, you can have examples in the Gospels of people falling down and worshiping him um, <clears throat> and treating him as divine. And then you have uh, good necessary consequence would be something that's not expressly stated but implied. So for example, um, he tells the man who is uh, paralyzed, your sins are forgiven, and then does the miracle of healing his body and enabling him to stand, and expects mm. the Pharisees uh, and or the Jewish rulers 
to draw the inference that therefore he's God because only God can forgive sins. So the uh, good and necessary consequence is referring to something that is, is not just a deduction from Scripture, but it's a, a good deduction uh, based on, on proper reasoning and, and so on, um, but it's also necessary. In other words, uh, people often ask the question, have the concern here, that if we're going to draw uh, inferences from texts, then the door is suddenly wide open to do anything we want with the Bible. Uh, but that's not what we're doing. We're, we're actually limiting these things very carefully and only drawing these conclusions uh, from the Bible when the scriptures themselves necessitate it. Hmm. Can you give me an example of, well, in the book you give a few examples, perhaps we can touch on one of them, but can you give an example in scripture where either the writers of scripture are employing that methodology or retelling or relating a narrative account that this methodology is actually being employed? Yes. Um, the best example, I think, just to go straight to the heart of the matter, is Christ and his own use of the principle in Matthew chapter 22. And here, Jesus not only illustrates the principle of good and necessary consequence, but virtually demands that we use it. And the scene that is before us in Matthew 22 is Jesus interacting with the Sadducees. And the Sadducees denied the bodily uh, resurrection of the dead. And most uh, hearers, I assume, will be familiar with the scene, but basically to, to rehearse it briefly, they come to him posing a riddle, as it were, and in the riddle that they pose to him, there's a woman who has essentially uh, married uh, seven men one at a time. In other words, she married the first, he dies, then she marries the second, the, the brother keeps coming in succession and fulfills the duty of a, um, uh, according to the Old Testament law of the brother raising up seed for uh, his brother who died. And they all do not uh, have children through this woman. And so they all die. And lastly, the woman dies also. And the Sadducees say, well, if if there's a resurrection, this is the implied question. If if the dead rise at all, then whose wife will this woman be? Which of the seven will she belong to? And they think that they've put Jesus into a uh, unanswerable situation, and assuming that uh, if the resurrection would involve the absurdity of a woman being married to seven husbands, and therefore there must be no resurrection at all. And Christ's answer uh, is particularly illuminating on this point. Uh, first, he tells them that they are ignorant of the nature of the life to come and describes people as neither marrying nor given in marriage, but being like the angels of God. Then he moves on 
to their misinterpretation of Scripture. And he actually says in one of the Gospel accounts uh, that you do err not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. Well, the question that comes out is, if somebody came to you and asked you, prove to me from the Old Testament that there is a bodily resurrection. I suppose most of us would would go for the clear, easy passages. Uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, you will live together with my dead body. Um, You have statements in Job uh, 19 about knowing that his Redeemer lives and at last he'll see him in his flesh. Um, Several other places we could go. Christ actually goes to what he refers to as the burning bush passage. Uh This is the passage in the Old Testament where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and the bush is not consumed. And Christ bases his argument on the fact that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what's interesting uh, about the argument is to us, in our modern world, it seems like there are many pieces missing. Um... The Sadducees are actually silenced by Christ's argument from the burning bush passage and have nothing to answer him with. And what's so uh, interesting about that is I think many uh, modern readers uh, often don't exactly understand what Christ is arguing. And if I could summarize it, uh, Christ appeals to essentially the present tense of the fact that I, not, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now they've died and they've gone, but I'm presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Huh. In a Jewish mindset, a person, was, uh, person consisted of, of both body and soul. And the idea is, because see, we would still say, well, how does that prove the resurrection? Because we understand how they're disembodied spirits with the Lord at the present day. Uh, But how does that prove a bodily resurrection? Well, he's assuming the same Jewish mindset that the Sadducees shared with him, that a person is a body-soul creature. And if the soul is still conscious and alive in the presence of God, then the body must be reunited with the soul eventually. Uh-huh. And he argues on this basis uh, that the, uh, the dead will be raised because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and God is still their God. And again, as many um, people have complained about drawing a theological inference from Scripture, Christ not only does so in this particular case, uh, but again, he turns around and accuses the Sadducees of being ignorant of the scriptures for not being able to draw the inference. Now that may be, I suppose, something very uh, humbling to us because it is not only an example of good and necessary consequence, an example where Jesus requires it of his hearers, but it's not an easy example either. 
Right. And yet, if, if nothing else, regardless of our difficulties, Christ is certainly telling the Sadducees, uh, you're in fault, and you are ignorant of the Bible because you're not drawing a theological inference from the text. And in fact, you say as much at the end of this opening chapter, which I want to um, briefly touch on. Um, you laid your book out in in a in a way um, that you admit right up front. You, you somewhat reversed the order of the way the series is generally done, apparently. And um, your first chapter lays the biblical foundations for this statement to be included in our confession, and, and rightly so. Um, but what you just said uh, pr- caused me to look up um, something in that chapter where you say, we do not have the excuse of claiming that only Christ and his apostles were able to interpret Scripture in this manner since they expected both their followers and their opponents to be able to do so as well. There's a strong indica- indictment against the Church if Christ's enemies accept his methods of biblical interpretation more readily than his followers often do. And I remember... When I read that, I thought, that is an interesting observation. Um, Here we are, professors of Christ, and we resist this idea that the enemies of Christ uh, readily accepted as valid. Um, They may not have bought into the final conclusion, but they accepted the the argument as valid. But but really, why, why lay the biblical foundation for this doctrine to begin with? or for this statement to begin with. Why not just jump into the historical analysis of why the Westminster Assembly included it, uh, which you do do, but why did you start there? Well, there would certainly be nothing wrong with starting with a historical question first, because, uh, and and one thing in favor of doing that would be that uh, answers the question of, of what does the phrase mean more easily and more readily because after all this is a series that is interacting with the Reformed Confessions. And so the first question that series itself presents is what does the Confession say, what does it mean, why is it biblical, and then why is it useful? And uh, in this particular case I chose to begin with the biblical interpretation of Christ and the Apostles and the expectations that they had of their hearers and readers because a lot of people uh, when they hear about drawing theological inferences from the text even before they understand what that means or what it may look like in practice or even ways that they've already assumed the principle Mm -hmm. intend to dismiss it as being uh, a perversion of scripture So this is why I really wanted to lay a heavy biblical foundation at the outset and show uh, with abundant evidence that the scriptures themselves expect us to use the principle if we're going to be faithful interpreters of the Bible. Mm -hmm. In the second chapter, you move into the Westminster Assembly proper, and you discuss in that chapter basically the historical development and reasons for, and in fact, you make a rather strong and, and I think accurate statement that without this statement, by good and necessary consequence, in the opening chapter of the Confession, it would have been impossible for the Westminster Assembly to actually draft their confession. Why is that? <clears throat> well, 
because essentially the Westminster Confession and Catechisms are a summary of doctrine. And uh, doctrine is a summary of what we believe the Bible says. So in framing a confession of faith, we're not simply regurgitating the language of Scripture, but we are summarizing in our own words, in some sense, what we believe the Bible says. Well, that's entirely drawing theological inference, uh, and, and everybody has had this experience of you, you meet another person, uh, you both say you believe in the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and at that stage uh, everything sounds good. But the question, and sometimes the disagreements come out when you ask, well, what does the Bible mean? And what does this text say? And two people can end up regurgitating uh, the same text and come to widely differing conclusions. And so the very fact of making a confession of faith, um, and, and some people don't like the idea, again, of, of adding confessions of faith, uh, as a secondary standard apart from the Bible as well but the fact is when any, whenever any Christian opens his or her mouth to say I believe the following we are making a confession of faith and we are summarizing what the Bible says there's actually a, a statement I quote somewhere in the book where uh, James Bannerman the old Scottish Presbyterian says that the uh, Bible is the best way to express God's mind, but not the best way to express my mind. And what mm -hmm. he means by that is in the Bible we have God's Word expressing His will and His mind, but I may or may not agree with it. And so if I'm going to profess my faith in God's Word and what God says, then of necessity, it's not always going to be the best way to express my own mind. I need to rephrase it. I need to say, this is what this means. Uh, this, is, this is why I agree with it. Uh, they, I could give an interesting historical illustration of why this principle is so important in framing a confession of faith. There was an uh, incident in the 1650s when... Uh, John Owen was teaching at Oxford, and uh, he and several others, including Richard Baxter, were asked to come together and form a confession of faith for lay people. And so the idea was that the national and public confessions were serving largely for ministers and other purposes, but this was going to be a, a basic bare-bones, uh, simple confession that could unite every church member. So of necessity, they wanted to keep it uh, brief and, and so on. Baxter insisted that he would not include any statements in that confession of faith that didn't consist of express statements of the Bible. And he believed he didn't want to impose on lay people uh, in the church theological inferences that he could accept in a more detailed confession, but he didn't feel that it was wise to impose on them. The real rub came when they were discussing the Trinity. And Baxter, I was just I was just thinking that Baxter, as you were saying, uh, telling that story. 
Baxter was unable to produce a direct quote or proof text for the deity of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you do have an inference where, you know, in, in Acts 5, you've not lied to God but to men, but that doesn't read very well in a uh, confession of faith. And so he actually found himself in a dilemma because he wouldn't budge on his principle, but he found that in the confession of faith, he couldn't include the deity of the Holy Spirit. That would be uh, a very, um, well, that would be a confession of faith uh, that is severely wanting. <laughs> if you if you had to leave that out because you don't have an express statement, which really leads to another aspect of why this statement is so critical uh, to our understanding of Christian theology, uh, our system of thought, and that is that I'm, how many times, and, and listeners are going to, I think, identify this right away, how many times in discussion with other Christians who, as has already been said, you both believe the Bible is the Word of God, but you get into a theological discussion or debate, and someone says, show me a chapter and a verse. And you, you can't. You can't show a specific wording that says specifically what you're saying, but by inference, by good and necessary consequence, you arrive at those conclusions um, based on careful understanding of those other passages. You wouldn't be able to have discussion with other people on these issues. For instance, the Trinity. Without this statement, Ryan, right? Right. If you didn't have good and necessary consequence, how would you be able to argue doctrinally the scripture or I mean the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity show me a verse a, a, a chapter and verse please where the Trinity is laid out explicitly right I mean it can't be done so we have a problem either there is no Trinity which is a, which is heretical or there is and by good necessary consequence we glean that from a host of passages in the both Old and New Testaments. Um, and that's just scratching the surface. I mean, there's plenty of other things. Um, but does this view lend itself to abuse? This phrase, by good and necessary consequence. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure um, it absolutely can. It's um, It can lend itself to abuse um if, if we're simply trying to draw whatever conclusions that we, we please from the Bible. Um, in other words, I think what we're aiming at here when we're using this principle is we're, tr we're still trying to honor the authority of God's Word. We're trying to use the principle because we're trying to honor the authority of God's Word and Christ and His Apostles virtually mandate it from us. And we basically need to um, we need to approach the text of Scripture with care and prayerfully searching the text, drawing conclusions from it, uh, only with great caution and some assurance that the uh, uh, this is indeed the mind of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Uh, one thing that can help us with that, I suppose, would be our uh, confessions of faith which have given us a, a good starting place and catechisms um, the as a minister it's interesting to me that in in practice essentially I feel like this is what I'm doing all week long 
because as I'm preparing sermons, I'm always asking the question of the text. So what's the primary, what's the primary thing that my text teaches this week? And then I have to set that out. And then I'm asking questions such as how is this important to these people? And how does this text reach them? And again, you know, in doing that, I'm going to be drawing uh, inferences from the text. I mean, maybe if I gave an example of abuse that might help. Um, I mentioned earlier the uh, <clears throat> example of reading our Bibles. Mm-hmm. Let's say I'm preaching on the famous passage about the Bereans in the book of Acts. The inference that I draw uh, from the fact that they searched the scriptures and many of them searched the scriptures daily and many of them came to the faith is that uh, you too should search the scriptures daily and the Lord often blesses this as the means to bring people to faith and I can apply that to different hearers and in different ways Um, I can also press the inference there that we need to be searching the scriptures daily and I can compare scripture with scripture such as Psalm 119 other places where uh, the Word of God is woven into the daily life of the believer and is a daily necessity so I can draw an inference for uh, daily Bible reading being our ordinary practice. Where I would abuse it is if I tried to say that the scripture infers that you must uh, read your Bible at 8.30 a.m. on Monday through Friday and then a different time on Saturday and so on. And you have to read uh, five chapters this time and three chapters this other time. Well, I may make suggestions and give examples as a minister that explains to people um, how I've done things or others have done things that may help them practice the principles but I can't say that that's an inference from scripture the scripture doesn't mandate that you have to read so many chapters a day or spend so much time but it does mandate by good necessary consequence that you must read your Bible daily yeah, and I think that's a very helpful um, explanation of this. Um, curiously and interestingly, you and you deal with this in the book, um, and I was glad you did because as I started to read the book, I was uh, I immediately uh, thought of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, here on the London Baptist Confession of Faith, they alter, change the wording. Um Maybe it's a twofold question. Why did they choose to do that? And is it, uh, is it diametrically opposed to the Westminster Standards? Are they in harmony and agreement? What's going on with the London Baptist Confession of Faith as it pertains to this subject? Well, maybe just as a word of background, uh, the London Baptist Confession is uh, almost verbatim based upon the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, with uh, at least as far as uh, the Baptists uh, could agree with it at the time there were minor improvements uh, made in their view or changes made I should say Um, I don't view them as improvements but my Baptist brothers do but that's why I'm a Presbyterian minister and not a Baptist (laughs) Right, right. but uh, the idea with the London Baptist Confession was to express uh, unity with 
uh, earlier confessional statements, and especially Westminster. And they did change the phrase on good and necessary consequence to uh, read that we're to believe not only uh, expressed statements or examples, but what is necessarily contained in Scripture. This has become, in some sense, a debate among Baptists up to the present day. And I can't speak too much to this. I'm certainly not an expert in uh, 17th century Baptist theology. Um, and the statement that I make in my book about this is, is uh, in a footnote, basically. Mm-hmm. But um, the difficulty is that one reason why some Baptists reject the practice of household or infant baptism is that they don't see expressed examples of it in the New Testament. And since the entire case for household or infant baptism hinges on good and necessary consequence, some Baptists have rejected the principle uh, and said that we cannot uh, use that type of principle and we need to demand express statements or approved examples. Now, when I say it that way, perhaps some of you even listening to this are, are thinking of occasions where maybe you've said that sort of thing or, or you've heard someone say that to you, that, um, you know, show me, show me an example of a child being baptized in the New Testament and I'll believe it. Um, usually when somebody says that to me, then I say, well, that's, that's an illegitimate restriction on biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the Sadducees said that, then they would have ended the conversation with Christ on the spot and not listened to his arguments. Um, the apostles wouldn't argue the way they do from Old Testament texts of Scripture. Um, that being said, though, I think that tends to be something more on a popular level. I know some very um, uh, well-known uh, brothers who are Baptist ministers, I won't mention names, but uh, they take the opposite side of this and argue that changing the phrase to necessarily contained in Scripture instead of by good and necessary consequence actually strengthens the point uh, that if something is inferred necessarily uh, in the text of Scripture, then those inferences are necessarily contained in the Bible. And uh, I haven't done enough historical research on it to know where they stood. But in the 17th century, uh, up until that point, and we're talking about the late 1680s now, just about the only people that denied theological inference from Scripture were the Socinians. Mm-hmm. And the Sassinians are what we could call modern-day Unitarians in some ways. And, of course, they rejected the Trinity and other doctrines such as that. Um, it really, uh, Sassinianism in some way gets mislabeled as an anti-Trinitarian movement. Uh, they actually were a movement that was much broader, where they exalted uh, reason above Scripture. And what I find so ironic about that 
is they exalted reason above scripture and would reject doctrines such as the Trinity uh, because they didn't think it was reasonable. <laughs> but at the same time, they rejected drawing theological inferences from texts of scripture and only wanted express statements of the Bible. So I think in that context, my, my suspicion is, as the Baptists are trying to pursue unity and, and want to be recognized as a branch of the Reformed Church, it would seem awfully strange to me for them to adopt what essentially was viewed as a Sassinian principle of biblical interpretation. And um, I, I have had at least one known, well-known um, Baptist who is well-versed in this 17th century Baptist theology that has said that he believes that's what he's found. But again, that's not my area of uh, expertise, mm -hmm. so I can't say definitively one way or the other. But I, yeah, and I th but I think what you have said is is helpful um, because although you, even in the book you chose the subject um, of infant baptism and admitted that this is really not the place to have that debate. It's not the place today to have that debate either. But um, but use that as an example um, where the same hermeneutical principle uh, would not be applied. Uh, they could, if they were consistent, then they would have difficulty with other issues as well um, uh, based on that whole principle. So, um, I think the idea that you were trying to demonstrate in the book, if I understood it correctly, was to show that there's, to there's that they are applying good and necessary consequence to other areas that they would readily hold to um, the Trinity, <laughs> the uh, and, and so forth, um, but then fall short on other subjects such as um, infant baptism and the like. So, um, so while they are employing it. Um, they're not consistently employing it across the board. Now, um, to wrap things up, I think um, your last, I think it's the last chapter, or, or second to last chapter, uh, is on the subject of objections. And you highlight for us three objections that I'd like to just briefly talk about. Um, the first one you mentioned is that um, objections to this principle uh, one would be doctrines derived from it cannot be binding upon the conscience of believers. Uh, number one, I guess the, the, the question is why is why would people make that objection? And, and how is that even an objection in the first place? Well, um, I, I cite um, Walter Kaiser as an example of this and uh, his his book that he wrote with Moses Silva on uh, introduction to biblical hermeneutics and he expressly says that to bind the consciences of believers that which is not directly taught in scripture is perilously close to raising up a new form of tradition that vies for equal recognition with scripture itself and he ends up saying of course that it uh, cannot be binding upon believers because the assumption that's being made in this objection is that the inferences are extra biblical and uh, I don't remember if it was Warfield or somebody else uh, that said uh, essentially an uninterpreted Bible is a useless Bible that uh, he does say the sense of scripture is scripture and 
this brings us full circle back to what we've considered in the book. If they cannot be binding, then this would rule out Christ's argument against the Sadducees. Um, if inferences cannot be binding, then the Church has been wrong to treat the doctrine of the Trinity as a fundamental article for 1700 years. Um, if, if inferences cannot be binding, then uh, sermon application, legitimate application from the text is, would become take it or leave it. Um, in other words, I don't have to listen to essentially what's being applied to me from the Word of God. Mm. The second objection is it makes the faith and practice of believers dependent upon the rationalizations of men rather than upon the Word of God. Yeah, and again, I would respond to that, that the principle does not do that, but the abuse of the principle does. And if legitimate inferences are uh, drawn from Scripture, this is um, not subjecting them to the rationalizations of men rather than the Word of God, but it is summarizing and applying the Word of God again. Um, I've had uh, plenty of conversations with, uh, with Mormons over different passages of Scripture, and even to a certain extent in recent conversations, where they're willing to uh, quote passages that say Jesus is God, and they will say He's God. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't mean the same thing by God that I mean. Um, they don't mean God equal with the Father and they still end up denying the Trinity, and they have a view that they add to that where I could be deified and become God as humanity. So, again, this, this idea of making the faith of believers depend on ration, rationalizations of men really falls to the ground because we're not talking about rationalizations of men in the sense of men sitting around trying to come up with doctrines that they want other people to believe in. We're talking about uh, seeking to discern the mind and the meaning of the Holy Spirit as he's revealed himself and his own will in Scripture. Yeah, you say that on page 63 of the book. You say the role of reason is not to create, and that's in, ital in italics, not to create theology from reading scripture. Reason is a necessary tool that is used to receive the doctrines already stated and implied in the Holy Word of God. And then Warfield, uh, you add this, this statement from Warfield, if this plea is valid at all, it destroys at once our confidence in all doctrines, no one of which is ascertained without the aid of human logic. Um, I mean, I... I don't know that we would understand any of the scripture, frankly, um, without that tool given to man. Uh, obviously, with the enlightenment, with the, uh, the the work of the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds, showing us what the scriptures teach. That that all goes without saying. But we've been given minds to think carefully about these matters, and but it's not to create something that isn't there, but it's to extract what is there what is present already there in the text to right. begin with. Um, I think, I don't know who said it to me, it was probably said many years ago, um, 
I don't think I've ever had an original thought in my entire life, but I just regurgitate that which I've heard from other people. Um, but they said that that um, that the the scriptures. Um, I lost my train of thought, and that's a horrible thing to do when you're on a radio program. So, <laughs> what was I going to say? Um, <laughs> talking about, really don't remember. Talking that about is really Warfield bad. and uh, yeah, the um, Bible. Yeah, um, I, I, I forget. Uh, that's pretty pathetic. But, um, but anyway, I'm sure it was good, whatever it was. Um, but only I will know what it was. Um, Actually, I don't even know what what, what I was going to say, but uh, but anyway, that's a, that's an important point. I think ultimately is that we're not creating something. We're not um, making the text say something it doesn't say. We're actually taking from the text what is presently there. Oh, I know what I know what I was going to say. That God did not hand down to us the Bible as a systematic theology textbook. Uh, he used history, time, events, people, narratives, events, uh, uh, occasions, uh, interactions between other people, and so forth, to communicate his divine will. And so in order to understand in a systematic way those doctrines that are cr- critical to our faith, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you go on and on, uh, you have to employ this this idea of good and necessary consequence because because again the scriptures are not a systematic theology textbook yeah. uh, perhaps it would have been easier for us had it been given that way but in God's wisdom he didn't give it that way uh, perhaps because uh, he knows our propensity for laziness and we would have been lazy people uh, and we wouldn't have dug in and we wouldn't have thought we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have leaned on the Holy Spirit to help us understand these matters we wouldn't have searched the scriptures we wouldn't have done none of the things that are necessary in order to rightly understand the mind of God in all of these things so and I should add here we do see a modern trend I believe in um, undermining systematic theology in the present day and I actually begin the book talking about that but it does relate here to the objections where in many circles and even many recent attempts at producing a reformed systematic theology, the idea is that uh, somehow we need to come closer to the discipline that we call biblical theology and even uh, exalt biblical theology above systematic theology because it's more honoring to scripture. Uh, because we're tracing the the gradual outworking and overflowing of God's revelation throughout time. Um, well, problem the problem is this: when we come down to practical questions, um, and I, I touched on this in a recent review of uh, Richard Gamble's whole Council of God, which essentially mm-hmm. tries to present systematic theology uh, in terms of biblical theology. My question is, if somebody comes to me and says, can you tell me about the attributes of God? Um, a systematic theology answer would be to go to the shorter catechism or perhaps the larger confession of faith and take a nice summary and we'll step back, look at the big picture, see what the Bible says. Um, Whereas uh, if you went to Richard Gamble's book and wanted to see his treatment of the attributes of God, the answer becomes, we'll read the first 700 pages. <laughs> because essentially you need to retell the biblical story. You're not summarizing. You're not giving a, a list and succinct discussion 
of who God is, but you're unfolding it step by step as you go through the whole thing. So the point is, you know, this idea of inferences and systematic theology is something that the average Christian uh, uses every single time they have a conversation about God or about the Bible. Right. And I think it's, it's sometimes only in the scholarly realm where we begin to um, really distort these questions. Nate, your final objection here, um, we can just touch on briefly because it just, well, it simply says it takes the Bible out of the hands of the people and places it into the hands of experts who act as a priesthood between the believer and the scriptures. Now, obviously, you would abhor that idea, <laughs> and so would I. Um, you know, but how does this 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 statement in the confession? How why would some people be led to think that in the first place? Well, the um, the idea is that this is uh, this principle requires a large deal of thought. It's open to abuse. Um, and therefore it would take the Bible out of the hands of the average person and put it in the hands of some experts to interpret it for us and mediate it uh, down to us. And, uh, and as you said, yes, I, I would uh, abhor that idea. But one thing that is often lost at the present time, and, and frankly was in my experience as a young Christian, is to have a balanced view of the necessity of individual Bible reading, prayerful Bible reading, and the public ministry of the Word. Mm, I'm glad and, you said that. Uh, that's really what I'm trying to get at here at, at, in this last section, is uh, if I could use sort of an autobiographical illustration of this. When I was recently converted towards the end of high school, I began to study the Bible uh, constantly, and the church that I attended, I eventually discovered was Arminian, and I didn't know what Arminianism or Calvinism was at the time, but I had been reading the Bible and basically became uh, convinced of what I later came to call Calvinism. Well, I felt this sense of betrayal and the teachers in my church were teaching the opposite. So I went from this trust relationship to a lack of it and took the tendency or had the tendency to bury myself in the Bible uh, in my room by myself. And I didn't want to hear anything anyone else had to say about the Bible. I didn't want to read any books outside of the Bible because I didn't want to cloud human ideas uh, in with the Bible. And ironically, uh, what happened one day is I was praying through the book of Ephesians and meditating upon the text, and I came to chapter 4, where Paul des describes a list of gifts to the church. And what's interesting is those gifts in Ephesians 4 are described exclusively in terms of church officers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the purpose of these gifts, these officers, is to prevent us from being tossed about by every wind of doctrine, to come to a unity of the faith and that sort of thing. Well, so suddenly I realized that by God's design, private Bible reading is both necessary and insufficient for the Christian life. 
Mm-hmm. And the example of the Bereans, again, often gets abused. Well, look at the Bereans. They search the scriptures daily, see whether these things was, were so. Well, that's only half the picture. The Bereans search the scriptures, then they listen to sermons. Then they yep. search the scriptures, and they listen to sermons, and kept repeating the process. And really, the idea of having gifted men whom God has given to help us interpret the Bible and apply it to our lives, coupled with our own personal devotion and worship to the Lord, is God's design for healthy Christian growth. You mean it's not just me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit in my closet, and that's it? Well, you can uh, you can try that, Bill, but I don't think it'll work out too well. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I've actually heard people, Christians, professing Christians, make that statement. And, and and you know basically dispensing with 2,000 years of church history, 2,000 years of biblical interpretation, 2,000 years of men who are, as you just said, gifted by God to lead and instruct the church. Um, they just dispense with all that. Um, I think one of my professors just said, if you ever think you discovered something new in the Bible in your own personal study, uh, you probably should check again. Yeah, because you probably haven't. And of course, um, you know, with the example I gave, I, I was uh, one of the chief offenders there at one point in my own in my own growth, and so I certainly sympathize with uh, um, how people approach this. But we need to recognize, in some on some level, that isolating ourselves in interpreting the Bible is a temptation of Satan mm-hmm. and not a design of God. Just as much as, as submitting to the slavish authority or submitting slavishly to the authority of a church and its tradition uh, is an equal and opposite error, the uh, scripture view is actually quite balanced. And when you talk about church history, there's a section in here in the book where I deal with the, um, uh, the Middle Ages. And uh, I found it uh, interesting recently, I, I saw a review of the book where somebody uh, criticized me for rejecting the uh, medieval fourfold interpretation of scripture and uh, oversimplifying things and throwing it out the window um, for uh, what I conceive their form view to be. Uh, but actually in that section, I'm not even advocating my view, I'm simply trying to describe uh, the Westminster Assembly's view and how they came to mm-hmm. it. And the other thing uh, that I find ironic about the uh, the criticism is it tails into what you just said. What I'm trying to show in that section is how the Westminster Assembly didn't throw the Middle Ages out as the Dark Ages. They built upon what God had done in the church and through theologians in the Middle Ages, and they took the fourfold method of interpretation, which we don't have time to get into now, um, but they modified it. They didn't throw it out. They they adopted it and wove it into their conception of how to apply the Bible, and they avoided saying that there are several senses of any passage of Scripture, uh-huh. but that doesn't deny that there's several different uses and applications and inferences from the text, and that's really where they learned by standing on the shoulders of the uh, medieval doctors and adapted what they learned to a reformed context. 
Yep, absolutely. And and I remember that section uh, quite well, actually, as I was reading it, um, uh, somewhat intrigued, but also reflecting on the reality that <clears throat> we've learned from those before us. And we've learned from their failures and we've learned from their successes. And um, we ought to be stronger as a result. Um, I sometimes wonder if that's the case. But anyway, that's another discussion for another day. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting to me. You talked about talk about the Bereans and, and this idea of good and necessary consequence and, and avoiding the, the out-of-balanced view that I can just hide in my closet and read the Bible and, and that's all I ever need. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, something that I often suggest uh, to people um, for their own feeding uh, and their own daily practice of reading Scripture. I said, you know, God in his wisdom has given us men who preach his word, uh, means of grace, every Lord's Day. Um, I, I said, you would be well served if you took that sermon, or two sermons as the case may be, and, and spent the next six days uh, pouring over, reflecting on, looking up different passages that support or whatever the case may be, what was preached from that pulpit every Sunday. I said, you would grow as a Christian by leaps and bounds if you would take advantage of that each and every day, but instead, what what ends up happening is we hear a sermon preached, and well, that was nice. That was his opinion. Um, I could take it or leave it, as you indicated earlier. And we go about our business, and by Monday, if even that long, uh, we have forgotten what the sermon was about entirely, and thus dispensing with the other half of the issue, which is that God has set apart men, has set apart. Uh, officers in the church to communicate his word, um, especially gifted to that end, and um, thus we lose out on a uh, on what I mean putting numbers on it, 50% of the of the gifts and graces that God has given His church uh, to begin with. I mean, if people would just start there um, with with meditating upon those sermons that are preached every Lord's Day, um, I would suspect we'd see a lot stronger Christian community um, altogether. Um, but instead they run to their Christian bookstore and they buy devotionals and they buy other means, not, not just putting them down, they have their means and purpose, but, but we have one divinely given one that no one or few people seem to take advantage of uh, each day. How would you feel, Ryan, you're a minister, if, if you knew your people were taking your sermons that you preached morning and evening and were, were sitting around in family worship discussing those sermons and sitting around their private uh, in their private Bible reading, thinking upon that sermon, meditating upon that passage, praying through those passages, and seeking to apply those things to their own lives. How would you feel as a minister? Well, we do. Um, we do actually have uh, some that uh, that do that here, and and I'm always grateful for that. And and one thing I found is they're not only uh, a help to themselves and their own growth and their own family. But even at the uh, prayer meetings on Wednesday night, we have some that will uh, take material from the previous Lord's Day sermon and weave it into the prayers, either as a matter of praise or things to help us practice. And uh, in that sense, it's not only a benefit to them, but I think a blessing to the whole church. And Absolutely. so that's that's a way in which we can uh, recycle these benefits of, of the sermons and spread them far and wide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we're out of time, obviously, and we certainly didn't cover every gambit of events. So that's what the book is written for. 
Um, so I would um, encourage people to get it. You can get it through um, Reformation Heritage Books. Um, I forget the website off the top of my head. Um, what's it? HeritageBooks.org. Yeah, thank you. There you go. HeritageBooks.org, um, and you can pick it up. It's not expensive. It's a it's a book. Like I said, you could read it um, in a couple hours. I mean, really, if you read it at average pace, um, and and think upon some of the things that are said. As I said, we didn't cover every possible thing. Uh, we we didn't talk about the fourfold view of interpretation. We didn't deal with that um, when we covered the highlights. Um, and some of the goods and bads and issues and objections. But um, get a copy of it. There's going to be more books coming in this series uh, in in future in the future. And so I look forward to those, and I hope the listeners do as well. Um, but I want to thank you, Ryan, for being on. I know uh, you're very busy, as you told me off air, um, with lots of things. I mean, the, the work of the ministry never seems to be, well, if anything, it's not lacking in attention. Um, so... Um, but I thank you for being on and, and carefully explaining this uh, subject that is really uh, crucial to our understanding of everything we really believe about what the Bible teaches. Um, and really, without it, we would be lost and not we wouldn't know what what's going on. I mean, we, what's the Trinity? What's what do these things mean? We would have no understanding of it. So, um, again, thank you for being on today. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to an interview, a discussion with uh, Pastor Ryan McGraw. He is the pastor of First Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Sunnyvale, California. I failed to acknowledge up front that he's a graduate of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, both MDiv and THM. He's also working on his doctorate in uh, studies on John Owen, which I will just note um, up front right now, or actually at the end, but I would just note for the leaders, uh, for the listeners' uh, interest, if you were keeping score at home, he only mentioned John Owen one time in the entire interview. I have been keeping track, actually. So that's kind of an inside joke between me and Pastor McGraw. But anyway, be that as it may, he is doing his Ph.D. work um, on uh, studies on John Owen. So look forward to that dissertation being released soon and, and seeing the culmination of that work in the near future. Next week, next next week, actually, I do know, uh, I know you're shocked. Everybody sit down, relax. I do know who's coming up on the program next week. Uh, usually I have no idea, but this week I do know um, we will be talking with Lane Keister. Um, he is a minister in the PCA who was uh, part of the prosecution that was involved in the Peter Lightheart trial. We are going to be talking with him about that trial and the results that have come from it, the fallout, uh, as a result of the Standing Judicial Commission in the Presbyterian Church in America and some of the issues that are circulating as a result of their dis- their decision, which was recently released. All this is public- publicly available on the Internet, so I don't think I'm saying anything I shouldn't say um, for those who are maybe raising their eyebrows at this moment. So that's next week. Uh, we'll be talking with uh, Pastor Lane Keister on that subject. So until then, I do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.